I'm Nat. And I'm Kat, and welcome to the Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale, Natalie, is your true crime medic connoisseur. We're just two normal girls who obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. Yes, here's your disclaimer chatters. The following crime chat contains adult content and descriptions of we're going to talk about some violent and psychological scenarios Ooh, today. My so favorite. Well, yeah. you've been warned. And well, your listener we get- discretion is advised. <laughs> <laughs> now you've been warned. <laughs> now you've been warned. Before we get into today's crime chat, Kat... I already know what you did because we're doing a double recording. We are so- <laughs> recording two episodes, so it's like, okay, same thing. Right. The only thing that's changed is Kat's background. Yes. To so, correlate with the story. Tell me what you're doing moving this week. This weekend. So our older son, it's his birthday. Mm-hmm. So we are taking him and his girlfriend to Helen, Georgia. It's this cute little Bavarian-themed town. Ooh. Okay. And so everything is like German food, German beer. We're staying in an Airbnb. We got this cute right. little like house right on Main Street. It was cheaper than a hotel, believe it or not. So it's all the comforts of home without staying in a hotel. How did you find this place? How- I love places like that. How did you find Helen, Georgia? So Chris was like TikTok or re- watching Reels or something, and it came mm-hmm. across – and he sent it to me, and I was like, oh, this is really cool. We should go there. And we just kind of got talking about it. Our older son, he did a couple of co-op in semesters when he was in college in Germany. He did German his first, like, four all four years of high school. So he loves that, like, German scene, I guess, or the mm-hmm. German culture. Yeah, Oktoberfest and all yeah. these the yeah. schnitzels. and yep. <laughs> yep. So we are going to Helen. We're going to go have a, a German weekend. So we're going to go have some Wiener Schnitzel. We're going to go have some Lagers and some Hefeweizens and just really kind of hang out for the weekend. It's up kind of in the mountains a little bit, uh-huh. kind of towards like the Blue Ridge. You, we'll probably be able to see the Blue Ridge Mountains from it. It's about a four or five hour drive for us. And he, well, he lives in Georgia, so but it's only maybe like an hour or two for him. So he's a little closer. They also have water rafting and like you can go down one of the rivers tubing, go tubing. So we're going to, I think we're going to do that. I don't know what we're going to do, but it'll be fun. It'll be a fun weekend. Well, happy birthday, Quentin. Happy birthday, buddy. What about you? You got any plans? My plans are I am going to continue to look for a new humble abode. Yes. I'm in the I'm in the market right now looking for some nice spacious I want a resort style humble abode. <laughs> I, I want I want a home. They don't have to think of anything. I don't want to deal with anything. <laughs> want a nice big spacious home at a studio cost. <laughs> yeah, I want to I just I just want to pay the HOA and let's let them do everything. But yeah, yeah so that's interesting because there yeah. are some really nice homes. You know, the, the one thing that I've been noticing, though, is that the places that I am seeing, a lot of them are redone, like completely soup to nuts, all redone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the reason why they're redone is because of Ian. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which makes me, you know, uh, yeah. I don't know. Well, so, you get it at a cheap price. I don't know. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so now, Kat, this week you've mentioned, I know who you're doing the story on because yes. you did mention you are coming over to my neck of the woods, not yes. Florida, but New York. Yes. And we are all very familiar with this case. Mm-hmm. I don't know the details, which mm-hmm. you're going to get into, mm-hmm. but it is a pretty famous 
case. And mm-hmm. we should know the details. This yes. is a case we all should know the details. So yes. I appreciate that you're doing this case. But you did ask me about New York City, and I'm always I, I always yep. love Sharon. I yep. love Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured we could set the stage. Yes. You know, for where the crime took place and kind of help give it a good environment feel mm-hmm. for all the ickies we're going to get into. Yeah. And you were very particular. You were like, what was going on in New York City in 1960s? So that's yes. what I focused on, 1960s. Yep. And I just pulled 10 big things okay. that was that were, that were going on in the 60s in New York City. Okay. Now, in the 60s... This was like a transformative period Mm -hmm. that was marked by significant cultural, social, and political changes. Mm -hmm. And I listed 10 key factors that were going on in New York City at this time. Now, New York City is a very turbulent place because – not turbulent in a bad way. It's constantly transforming because we mm-hmm. have so many different cultures, just like big melting pot. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most beautiful places to visit. It is the place to kind of be for a lot of things. And it's the place you don't want to be for a lot of things. <laughs> so we're, we're going to touch on a couple of those too. Okay. Well, number one, during the 1960s, counterculture and civil rights Mm-hmm. There was a huge movement. The 1960s yeah. were a time of social upheaval and activism. Mm-hmm. The civil rights movement was in full swing. The activists like Martha Luther King led protests and advocating for racial equality. Mm-hmm. Many significant civil rights events took place in New York City during this time as well, including protests, marches, and rallies. Okay. It was, it was a place that Things got done. Like if you wanted to make a scene, if you wanted Mm -hmm. to get something or be heard, New York was a Mm -hmm. good place to do it at. Yeah. Yeah. Number two, music and arts. In the 1960s, it was a vibrant period for music and arts in New York City. So Mm -hmm. folk music revival was underway Mm -hmm. in venues like Greenwich Village, Mm -hmm. the coffee houses. Mm -hmm. The iconic musicians like Bob Dylan emerged. Mm -hmm. The Beatles made their historic visit to New York City in 1964. Oh, yeah. yeah. Marking the British invasion. <laughs> yes, the city I remember. Went nuts. Yeah. <laughs> the city's art scene flourished with the rise of pop art. And this had figures like Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. who became a central figure to the cultural landscape. Mm-hmm. And of course, we just mentioned it Greenwich Village. Yeah. Have you ever been there? No. Uh-uh. Oh. It's amazing. It's amazing. It really is amazing. It's very artsy. Yeah. I don't say it's just artsy. Because when you say artsy, you think of like starving artists. (laughs) (laughs) This is like, this is like the richest artists living will live in Greenwich Village. Which borough is it in? That's Manhattan. It's in Manhattan. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, this is a hub for artists, okay? Writers, musicians. It's known for its bohemian atmosphere Mm -hmm. and its focal point for the, like, countercultural movement. So, like, you know, back in the 60s, New York had a huge population of Irish immigrants, Mm -hmm. huge population of Italian immigrants, Mm -hmm. which the most common is a Italian-Irish mixture, mixed families like mine in New York. But a lot of people don't know this, but like majority of the police force, fire department, sanitation, port authority, they were all Irish. Mm -hmm. And the Italians kind of were the, you know, the mob. The mob. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the the, the counterculture movement was huge and they 
there was a lot of upheaval. Yeah. Now, the neighborhood in Greenwich Village has a lot of like coffee houses and music venues. Okay. okay? So, but, but higher end. It's not like, you know, like I, have you ever, have you ever heard of CBGBs? No. Okay. CBGBs is where like the Ramones got their first time on stage. Oh, okay. And it's in the middle of the Bowery and the Bowery in New York is not the best place to go walking at night. But CBGBs was like right in the middle of no man's land. Mm -hmm. Like there was no reason to go to the Bowery Mm -hmm. unless you were getting murdered (laughs) or going to see a concert. So like- CBGB's was like this one little like it was in the middle of a trashy area but it had this it was just so well known for these it was like an underground music venue that some real predominant musicians found yeah you know a place on the stage for them yeah but Greenwich Village is kind of the flip side of that Greenwich Village was the higher end of you know Oh, and number four, Cat, the Stonewall Riots. Oh, yeah. In 1969, the Stonewall Riots occurred in Greenwich Village mm-hmm. neighborhood, mm-hmm. Uh, marking the pivotal moment for the LGBTQ plus community and their rights. Mm-hmm. The riot was a response to police raid in the Stonewall Inn, mm-hmm. uh, which is a gay bar, and it led to increased visibility and activism for the, the LGBTQ plus community. Now, mm-hmm. you can get documentaries on that. Mm-hmm. That was that whole riot sparred from because back then, remember, things weren't exactly legal. Okay, mm-hmm. so what the gay bar Stonewall, what they said they were going through was the police would do these raids, full knowing that they weren't doing anything wrong, but because there was a counterculture of not accepting the gay community, mm-hmm. that they would go in and we're actually going to talk a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah. So, like, the drag scene Mm -hmm. that was going on, Mm -hmm. they, if, if, you know, it could be a CEO from a company, if he gets dragged out, at that point, could potentially ruin his life. Yeah. You know, there's this, so it was a touchy area. Yeah. So now, number five, economic challenges. Despite the cultural vibrancy, New York City faced economic challenges in the 1960s. The city experienced a decline in manufacturing and an increase in crimes. Yes. Urban decay and the fight of the middle class residents in the suburbs were a predominant issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, number six, urban development. Mm-hmm. In 1960s, saw urban development projects that aimed to reshape the city's landscape. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, this a lot of this development would happen in like Staten Island. Mm-hmm. They were trying to kind of like broaden where people can go I with was their families, say spread it out, spread the love. Yes, which led to the Verrazano Bridge being built in 1972, mm-hmm. 71. One notable project was the co- construction of the World Trade Center in Lower mm-hmm. Manhattan. Mm-hmm. However, these projects faced criticism for displacing communities and altering the city's character. Mm-hmm. Number seven, political climate. New York City was a center of political activity in 1960s. Mm-hmm. The city played a role in the presidential campaigns, including the election of John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. A new left movement gained momentum on college campuses with protests against the Vietnam War and other social issues. Right. Not a fan here because I have relatives that fought in the Vietnam War and were horribly treated mm-hmm. returning. Horribly yeah. treated. Yeah. From two episodes ago, it talked about the greatest beer run ever. You need to watch that movie. I'm going to watch it. I saw, yep. actually, you know what? I, I did look that up and mm-hmm. I saw the guy, he was like sitting on a can. Yep. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to watch it. All right. Number eight, fashion. New York City's fashion scene was influential during this period. Mm-hmm. The decade saw shifts in clothing styles with the emergence of mod fashion, miniskirts, mm-hmm. and bold patterns. Mm-hmm. Who, who doesn't remember having a Harvest Gold refrigerator? Did you have a Harvest? You didn't have a Harvest Gold refrigerator? <gasps> Every body. Ours was like pink green. Oh, yes. That was the other color. It was like that puke pea green or the harvest gold and the velvet couch with the wood paneling and the shag rug. (laughs) Everything was brown. Yeah. (laughs) Number nine, television and media. New York City remained a major media hub with Mm -hmm. television studios and networks located in the city. In the 60s, they brought iconic shows like The Ed Sullivan Show mm-hmm. and The Tonight Show starring, starring Johnny Carson and yeah. the show that I loved, Late Night with David Letterman. Yeah. Yep. Come on. And number 10 and my final major New York City contribution to this world is pizza. What pizza. Pizza. It doesn't – every generation. I'm shocked it wasn't in this list. I added it to this list because in my head <laughs> – in every generation, you always have to start with a pizza. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. Right. You yeah. always got to start with it. So yeah. overall, overall, 1960s in New York City was a time of change that marked social activism, cultural innovation, and political turbulence. The mm-hmm. city played a central role in shaping today's culture as we know it. And the story that we're going to talk about is kind of a classic example of mm-hmm. everything that you just mentioned. It's ta- it talks just about everything. <laughs> And I think kind of pizza, too, so. (laughs) Oh, okay, good. (laughs) Well, today we're going to talk about the 1964 murder of Kitty Genovese. She was a bartender walking from her car to her apartment in Queens at about 3 o'clock in the morning. She was attacked and stabbed to death while bystanders witnessed the attack as she yelled for help. Even though one of Kitty's neighbors initially spooked the attacker off, he ran off, but he waited about 10 minutes, came back, stabbed, robbed, and raped Kitty leaving her for dead on her doorstep. Oh, my God. Now, several things from this prolific event to include something called the bystander effect and the development of the 911 emergency call center. A lot of things came out of this, but we're going to actually, we'll start with who Kitty was. Okay. Born Catherine Susan Genovese on July 7th, 1935 in Brooklyn. Kitty was the oldest of five children in her Italian-American family. She was raised Catholic in a Brooklyn neighborhood populated mainly by Italian and Irish immigrants. Go figure. (laughs) She attended and graduated from the all-girl Prospect Heights High School. After her mother, Rachel, actually witnessed a murder, the family moved to New Canaan, Connecticut. However, Kitty stayed behind to live with her grandparents because she was about to get married. She did marry, but it was annulled in 1954 when Kitty disclosed that she was a lesbian. Living on her own now, Kitty moved into an apartment and worked various clerical jobs. She didn't care for this line of work specifically and decided to become a bartender. In August of 1961, she was arrested for being a bookie. She took bets on horses from bar customers. She and a friend, D. Guarinari, sure, they both (laughs) lost their jobs and were fined $50. Kitty then started another bartending job at Eve's 11th Hour Bar on Jamaica Avenue in Queens. Do you know where that is? I used to work there. I used to work on Jamaica sh- Avenue. Not oh. the bar. Oh, but I used to work on Jamaica <laughs> Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. She worked there. 
She soon began to manage the bar in the absence of the owner, and she was would work double shifts, trying to save enough money to hopefully open up an Italian restaurant and serve pizza. <laughs> By 1963, Kitty also had a girlfriend. Her name was Marianne Zielanko. They lived together in the Kew Gardens apartments in Queens. Mm -hmm. In the prevailing social climate of the time, they were typically described as merely roommates. Do you know where yeah. Kew Gardens apartments is? I do. I had aunt live there. Yeah. Well, that's this right here. Behind <laughs> oh, me. is it? Yeah. Oh, but, but that's an old picture of it. Yes. Yes. Okay, this is the okay. crime scene behind me, but I'll, oh. I'll talk you through it in a minute. Okay. So on March 13, 1964, around 2.30 in the morning, Kitty closed up the bar and started to head home. She got home around 3.15. She parked outside of the Kew Gardens Long Island Ro Railroad Station, which is about 100 feet away from her apartment. The entrance to her apartment is right here. Oh, okay. Number two. Okay. Where it says number two, there's like a little doorway right here. Yeah. That's basically like an alleyway that goes to the rear of the building to get to the entrance of okay. where she lived. She was attacked here. Where it says number one. Okay, got it. Got this it. is where she was attacked. So she was walking home, trying to walk, you know, walk down the sidewalk here. Right. She was attacked by a man with a hunting knife. There was a struggle, but Kitty was overtaken, and she was stabbed twice in the back. Kitty yelled, oh my God, he stabbed me. Help me. Several neighbors heard her cry for help, but only a few could actually make it out as like, saying that she needed help. She, a lot of people didn't realize what she was saying. One neighbor, Robert Moser, yelled at the attacker from one of the apartment windows, yelled down, said, let that girl alone. This spooked the attacker. He ran away. And K Kitty slowly started to make her way towards, like, down this down this little alleyway right here, yeah. towards the back. So she kind of made it, she got attacked, she made it to here, to the front of the, kind of the alleyway, and uh -huh. then she started to make her, her make her way back to get to her apartment. She was seriously injured, but back in the alleyway, she was out of sight. Nobody could see her once she made it back there. Neighbors say that they saw the attacker enter his car, which was parked at a bus stop down the street, and then drove away. About 10 minutes later, he'd returned. He began searching the parking lot, kind of where Kitty was parked at the railroad station, where he was parked by the bus stop. He went then to the rear of the apartment complex, and he found her. Kitty, who was barely conscious at this time, was laying in a hallway at the back of the building. There were doors that were nearby, and it looks like because there might have been some blood or something left on there, she tried to get into the doors, but they were all locked. The attacker then grabbed Kitty and stabbed her several more times before raping her, stealing $49 from her, and then running away again. The second attack lasted 30 minutes. Kitty was found by a neighbor and friend named Sophia Farrar. Sophia whispered to Kitty, help is on the way. Knife wounds to Kitty's hands also indicated she tried to defend herself, so there were some defensive wounds. The ambulance arrived at 4.15 in the morning, and Kitty died en route to the hospital. She was buried on March 16, 1964, at the Lakeview Cemetery in New Canaan, Connecticut, which is where her family lived at the time. Now, police investigated their phone log, essentially, the night and to see how many people had called. But for some reason, they saw some phone calls come in, but none of them were given a high priority. So this was four years before New York City began using the 911 emergency call system. In the phone records, they discovered one caller saying that a woman was beat up but got back up and was staggering. Another call revealed that one witness called his friends to ask for advice first on what to do before calling police. So Marianne, Kitty's girlfriend, was questioned on the morning after the murder. Initially, police considered Marianne a suspect. 
She was later interrogated for six hours, and like you said, primarily because of their relationship. She was raped. Oh my god, this is so disturbing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, it was evidence that the police did focus on their relationship. Marianne was later cleared of any wrongdoing because she was asleep upstairs while the attacks took place. Can you imagine that, like, survivor's guilt? That's you know. That's horrible. In a 2016 article, Marianne, who was then 77 at the time, said, quote, I was very numb. I would say from the whole thing. I felt, wow, she was so close and I was sleeping and I didn't know what happened and that I could have saved her, you know, and that's what I really still think, end quote. Five days later, after Kitty's murder, 29-year-old Winston Mosley was arrested for being a suspect of a robbery when police found a television in the trunk of his car. The car was searched after a witness saw Mosley removing a television from their neighbor's house. During his interview, Mosley claimed he was a mover and he was hired to remove things from the house. Huh. However, neighbors did confirm that the owners were not moving. I was going to say, yeah, I move things from houses. It just <laughs> Yeah, it got hired to do this. Yeah, the owners don't know. So the neighbor who called in, the witness, before calling police, after he saw Mosley take the television out of the neighbor's house, he disabled Mosley's car so he couldn't flee. But during the investigation, the detective recognized his car. It was similar to the one of the unidentified man who attacked Kitty. Because witnesses saw that the man drive away, the vehicle description was similar to this guy who was stealing televisions. Okay. Now, after being questioned, Mosley confessed to killing Kitty. He also confessed to murdering and raping two other women, Annie Mae Johnson, who was shot and burned to death a few weeks earlier, and Barbara Kralik, 15, who was killed in her home the previous year. Now, Mosley was married. He had three children, no previous criminal record. He worked as a tab operator, which is somebody who prepared the old, like, clock-in punch cards mm -hmm. that would be used to input a time card, essentially. Ugh. And he liked Hallmark. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mosley told police he got up around 2 o'clock in the morning that night. His wife was at work on night shift as a registered nurse. He decided to drive through Queens to find a victim and said his motive was simply, quote, to kill a woman, end quote, because they were easier to kill and didn't fight back. <laughs> As he was driving around Queens, he spotted Kitty driving on her way home. He parked, then followed her as she made her way to her apartment. Along with confessing to the two other women that he said he killed, Mosley also confessed to about 30 to 40 different burglaries. Subsequent psychiatric examinations suggested that Mosley was also a necrophiliac. Someone who is sexually attracted or conducts sexual acts on corpses. Ew. Oh. Now, <laughs> initially, Kitty's murder didn't gain much media attention until then-police commissioner Michael J. Murphy had an interview with somebody from the New York Times, and he said, quote, that Queen story is one for the books, end quote. And this was an order to get the newspaper to publish an investigative report, so he was trying to give them some more information. And they did. This was the headline of their very first story that's behind me. 37 who saw the murder and didn't call police. That's a good headline. That's like, what the fuck? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On March 27th, 1964, two weeks after the murders, the Times indicated that some 37 witnesses saw the murder, which was actually later corrected in what you hear more, more frequently is 38. So originally they reported 37 uh -huh. and then corrected it to 38. But this was the original headline. This highlighted one unidentified witnesses who urged their neighbor to call police because they quote-unquote didn't want to get involved. 
This then turned into one of the most covered stories, amplifying the issues surrounding insensitivity of life in big cities, specifically in New York City. Uh-huh. This greatly increased the urgency to create a central emergency number, 911. At this time, the United Kingdom was the first known to have a national emergency number. They used 999. They still use 999 today. In 1957, the National Association of Fire Chiefs recommended the use of a single number to help report fires, to have like one number somebody could call if somebody's house is on fire. The first known city in North America, however, was in Winnipeg, Manitoba in Canada. They used 999 originally, but then later switched, Canada later switched to 911. So initially, the New York Times erroneous number that none of the witnesses called police in response to Kitty's cry for help They did discover through the investigation calls were made, even though the witnesses didn't necessarily want to get involved. At this time, when somebody would call a local precinct, like for an emergency, the response would depend on either like the desk sergeant or somebody else of a higher ranking who was kind of managing what they would do with those calls. So even though they got saying, you know, somebody's getting beat up or, you know, I heard a lady screaming, I don't know what's going on. Uh It's up to the desk sergeant or whoever's in charge at the time to say if they're going to respond or not. And it wasn't like this was um, New Year's Eve or like a big night where there would be a lot of people and their resources would be spread thin. So that was kind of interesting to me too. So by November of 1967, as recommended by the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and Administration of Justice, the Federal Communications Commission met with AT&T, and (laughs) it took them like three months to decide on what number they were going to use. They opted with 911. (laughs) But remember on like the old rotary phones, the reason why they didn't use 999 because it was the last number, and it would be like 9, it would take longer. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So they used 911 because it would be 9 to make it quicker. And it's kind of, I mean, it's a number that people would remember. So originally, also, independent phone companies were not included in this emergency telephone plan for whatever reason. And it was only implemented with those associated with the Bell telephone systems. By March 1st, 1968, AT&T implemented this central emergency number first in Huntington, Illinois, but it would take actually years for this to go nationwide. By 1979, 26% of the U.S. population could dial the number. This increased to 50% by 1987 and then to 93% by 2000. As of March 2022, 98.9% of the U.S. population now has access to it. Also, as note, September 15th of 2010, AT&T announced first, it was first announced in the state of Tennessee that there was a text to 911 availability. So now AT&T would would allow its users to text 911 versus calling 911. This is now standardized across the nation with the various different phone companies. Now, regardless of this implementation in the new central emergency number, public reaction originally to the murders didn't change. According to a New York Times article dated December 28, 1974, 10 years after Kitty's murder, 25-year-old Sandra Zoller was beaten to death early Christmas morning in an apartment within a building that overlooked the site, actually, where Kitty was murdered. Neighbors again say they heard scream and quote-unquote fierce struggles, but did nothing. In an interview on NPR March 3, 2014, Author Kevin Cook wrote a book called Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, and The Crime That Changed America. And he said this in his book, quote, 38 witnesses. That was the story that came from police. And it really is what made the story stick. 
Over the course of many months of research, I wound up finding a document that was a collection of the first interviews. Oddly enough, there were 49 witnesses. I was puzzled by that until I added up the entries themselves. Some of them were interviews with two or three people who lived in the same apartment. I believed that some harried civil servant gave that number to police commissioner who then gave it to the Times and entered it into modern history of America after that, end quote. So basically what he's saying is while they interviewed 49 people total, they were saying there were 38 interviews. So some interviews had multiple people in it. Okay. But basically, so what he was saying is individually there were 49. Okay. So two decades after the murder, the Chicago Tribune began an article titled Justice in the Wrong Hands by saying, quote, 20 years later, a man known in headlines as the subway vigilante and the death wish gunman shoots four teenage boys on a subway and a disturbing number of voices expressed delight. Miss Genovese screamed for more than a half hour. The public reaction is disbelief that law enforcement authorities will protect people against street crime and its display of belief that the rule of force is all that is left, end quote. So in a bit of a twist, the reported 38 witnesses, New York Times said, that was likely inaccurate. A 2004 New York Times article and 2007 study suggested the original 1964 Times article covering Katie's murder and unresponsive witnesses was, was erroneous. 2016 New York Times called their own original article flawed. It said, quote, the article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. No one saw the attack in its entirety. Only a few had glimpsed parts of it or unrecognized cries for help. Many thought they heard lovers or drunks quarreling, end quote. Now, Kitty's brother, William, one of her brothers, Uh did a documentary in 2015 and discovered that other crime reporters knew of the problems with the New York Times original story back in 1964. Immediately after the story broke, WNBC television news station reporter Danny Meehan discovered many inconsistencies with the original article in the Times. Meehan asked the Times reporter Martin Gansberg why his article failed to reveal that witnesses didn't feel a murder was happening. There's a murder happening. Nobody did anything. And that was kind of the the scene that they set in their article. But it didn't necessarily, they didn't know that a murder was occurring. And they couldn't see, a lot of them couldn't see anything because she was back into, like, back that alleyway. Mm-hmm. Well, Martin Gansberg, the, the author of the original article, said, quote, it would have ruined the story, end quote. He decided he wasn't going to be completely truthful in the article. And he was questioned about this in 1964. Now, not wishing to jeopardize his career, Meehan, the television reporter, he didn't want to attack a powerful figure like the New York Times editor Abe Rosenthal, so he kept what he found a secret, saying basically a lot of it had to do with Abe Rosenthal, who was the editor of the Times at the time. And by the way, Rosenthal is the person that the New York City Police Commissioner met with when he said that they need to look into it, into Kitty's investigation. So a lot of weird stuff going on. Yeah. Either way, the lack of action response was also studied and is known as the bystander effect or the Genovese effect. Psychologist Francis Cherry has suggested that people, especially at that time, were unlikely to intervene if they believed a man was attacking his wife or his girlfriend. She suggested that the issue might be better understood in terms of, like, male-female power relations. Mm. So the bystander effect, or the Genovese effect, is defined as the phenomenon in which individuals are less likely to intervene during an emergency if other witnesses are in the same situation. 
Social psychologists John Darley and Bib Lantony started this line of research showing that contrary to common expectation, larger numbers of bystanders actually decrease the likelihood that someone will step forward and help a victim. They explained that there are three reasons why this bystander effect occurs. First, the diffusion of responsibility occurs when individuals are in the presence of others, thus lowering their own sense of personal responsibility. Like, oh, somebody else will do it. Uh-huh. I, I, don't, I don't want to get involved. Somebody else can do it. Second, evaluation apprehension occurs when an individual chooses not to intervene out of fear or being judged or making a mistake, like didn't want to get in trouble for doing something that maybe they shouldn't have done, even though they were really trying to help. Right. Third, pluralistic ignorance occurs when an individual privately disagrees with a norm or behavior, but will go along with what other people think in the group are thinking. Like, I don't necessarily agree with that man beating his wife, right. but nobody else is doing anything, so I'll just plead ignorance. Uh-huh. So the Genovese case thus became a classic figure in social psychology textbooks in the United States and in the United Kingdom. In September 2007, the American Psychologist Journal published an examination of the factual basis of coverage of Kitty's murder in psychology textbooks. The three authors of this journal concluded that the story was more parable than fact, largely because of inaccurate newspaper coverage at the time of the incident and inaccuracies, which we kind of already talked about Uh some of the erroneous and maybe inflated information that was pushed out. According to the authors, quote, despite this absence of evidence, the story continues to inhabit our introductory social psychology textbooks, end quote. A survey of 10 leading undergraduate psychology textbooks found that the Genovese case was in all 10 of them. So if you're like undergraduate school, you're going through a psychology course, 10 out of 10 uh-huh. had, had this case in it, had the Kitty Genovese case in it. Eight of those textbooks suggest that witnesses watched from their windows as Genovese was murdered, and two of those textbooks stated that some or most of the witnesses heard it but could not see the attack. So that was a lot, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you may be asking, what the hell happened to Mosley, the murderer? Yeah, yeah. Let me finish Mm -hmm. that story. So Mosley, who confessed, he went on trial June 8, 1964, for the murder of Kitty Genovese. He was not charged in the other two that he actually confessed to. There were some complicating factors, one of them being another man, Alvin Mitchell, actually confessed to killing the 15-year-old Barbara Kralik previously. Somebody else had already confessed to killing her. Mosley pled guilty initially, but his attorney later changed his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. Mosley testified on the facts of the night that he murdered Kitty, said what happened, why he went there. He also testified to killing the two other women during his actual testimony and admitted to the numerous burglaries. The jury deliberated for seven hours before returning a guilty verdict on June 11, 1964. June 15th, Mosley was sentenced to death. On June 23rd, Mosley appeared as a defense witness in the murder of Barbara Kralik, charging Alvin Mitchell, the initial man who confessed to killing the 15-year-old Barbara Kralik. Uh Mosley was given immunity from this in order to testify, and when he testified as a defense witness, he said, I killed Barbara. The trial produced a hung jury initially for Alvin Mitchell. Alvin Mitchell was then later convicted in a second trial. I didn't look too much into that one, but that seems interesting. Okay. Especially if you have somebody else. I don't know. It just kind of goes back to relying more so on confessions versus physical evidence, forensic evidence, which 60s, you know, maybe really just kind of starting to understand Mm -hmm. a little bit more forensics, that kind of thing. 
So by June 1st, 1967, New York Court of Appeals reduced Mosley's sentence to life imprisonment, stating that Mosley should have been able to argue the insanity plea during his original trial, so they reduced his sentence. But it doesn't end there. On March 18th, 1968, Mosley escaped from prison. What? He was <laughs> Now listen, he was being transported back to the prison from Meyer Memorial Hospital in Buffalo. He had received surgery from a self-inflicted injury, and on his way back to prison, he hit the transportation officer, stole his weapon, and then fled to a nearby vacant house. <laughs> <laughs> you ever you ever, you know South Park with the mother, yeah. she's like, yeah. what, what, That's what, that's yeah. what's happening in what, my head what, right what, now. <laughs> yeah. So Mosley stayed there. He went undetected for three days. But on March 21st, the owners of the vacant home came to check on it, and they found Mosley inside. He held the owners hostage for more than an hour. Oh, my God. Gagging the man and raping his oh. wife. Mm. Mosley then took the couple's car and fled. The next day, March 22nd, he broke into another home. He held a woman and her daughter hostage for two hours, but he did release them both unharmed. He surrendered to police shortly after that, where he was charged and pled guilty to escaping and kidnapping. Mosley was given two additional 15-year sentences to be served concurrently into, uh, on top of his life sentence. Also, Mosley participated in the Attica prison riot in September of 1971. Oh, God. With all of this... <laughs> Mosley became eligible for parole in 1984. What the hell? Okay. I know. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet. Yet. During his first parole hearing, he said that he never intended to kill Kitty Genovese, only to rob her. He said, quote, people do kill people when they mug sometimes, end quote. His parole was denied. Thank you. I mean, he, he, he attacked her and then returned 10 minutes later. I know. Maybe the first time when he stabbed her, he got scared by the guy yelling at him and then waited because he's like, shit, I didn't steal anything from her. Let me go back. She's weakened. Right. You know, she's wounded. It'll be easier. Uh, but why rape her? I don't know. So on March 13th, 2008, the 44th anniversary of Kitty's murder, Mosley had another parole hearing. He continued to show very little remorse for the murder and again was denied parole. He had 18 parole hearings. Mm. Altogether, the last one occurred on November fifteenth, twenty fifteen. He died in prison, March twenty eighth, twenty sixteen, at the age of eighty one. Mosley served fifty two years, and this made him one of the longest serving inmates in the New York State's prison system. Overall, this murder was more than just a story. It highlighted cities who were alienating and dehumanizing their community members uh -huh. who might have been in trouble or needed help. Even today, Kitty Genovese's name is invoked around the world, especially when people fail to help one another in times of violence or emergency. Yeah. Even in our age of social media and instant communication, the Genovese effect still occurs. Mm -hmm. Here's a couple examples. Columbus, Ohio, 2016, 18-year-old woman witnessed her teenage friend being raped, and instead of stepping in to help the victim or at least call police, she streamed the live video of the assault <sighs> on the Periscope app. She got caught up in the likes, the prosecutor said. <laughs> in a plea bargain, she was found guilty of obstruction of justice and sentenced to nine months in prison. Nine months, though. That doesn't seem like a whole lot. Yeah. December 31st, 2016. Four young people kidnapped and tortured a mentally disabled teenager, streaming their brutality on Facebook Live. One assailant was so devoid of empathy for the victim that she whined on camera about not having a digital audience saying, quote, ain't nobody watching. End quote. Wow. Mm. It reminds me of, um, what's her name? Uh, Amanda Taylor. 
Oh, yeah. It, uh. <laughs> now, while many of these situations aren't necessarily common, it does inspire a duty to rescue or duty to report type of requirements. Mm-hmm. Such statutes are distinct or better known as the Good Samaritan Laws, which exist nationwide and offer protection against liability for those who act when they see people in peril. While it's not mandated to intervene, some state laws do tend to be not so stringently enforced. Like, they're not going to enforce that you have to act, yeah. but it's available for you if you do act to protect you against any liability. Uh-huh. Most people know them as the Good Samaritan Laws. Yeah. Now, even though a number of witnesses in the Kenny Genovese murder was erroneously inflated, there was one, remember, who came to Kitty's aid at the time of need, her friend and neighbor, Sophia Farrar, who raced down the stairway without knowing who was there or what was happening. She just heard screaming. In 2020, Sophia died in her home in New Jersey of pneumonia. While some neighbors were scared or silent, and some probably could have done more, there was a hero amongst the few. One last note. This March coming will be 60 years since the Kitty Genovese murder. And be ready, because I anticipate many articles yes. <laughs> about the 60th anniversary. So even when Mosley died in prison it back in, I think it was 2016, there was tons of articles because it just brought everything back up again. Yeah. It brought everything back up again about the bystander effect or the Genovese effect, about the 911 system, about it just caused a lot of question into people If you're with a large group of people or if there's a large population, there's less chances for intervention if you're witnessing a crime or uh, act of violence or something. If you think about like even car accidents, okay, busy highway, tons of cars, tons of cars, tons of cars, and there's an accident, Mm -hmm. how many people actually stop? If you're that one or two or something that happens that you might feel more obligated to because there's nobody else around. Right. But when there's so many other people around who are witnessing the same thing. You just think somebody else is going to do it. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's an interesting thought. It really is. It happens everywhere. It happens. It doesn't have to be so violent. It, it could happen in a classroom. Mm-hmm. People are just, they're just not confident to stand up singular and just say mm-hmm. something. It's, it's just, right. I don't know. Well, and one of them too is like I, you're kind of going along to get along. So maybe it only takes one or two people going, we need to stop this. And then other people will be like, yeah, we need to stop this. And, you know, more people would get involved, but it's just like, I just don't want to get involved. Yeah, I've, I've had many friends that had that, something like this kind of in their brain. It's almost like this uh, this agreeable effect mm-hmm. <laughs> where they're over, yeah. where, you know, there's nothing wrong with being agreeable right. to, to not have conflict in your life. That's fine. But if you're agreeable to a point where it's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. There's something you are disconnected. You are part of the problem. Yeah. You become part yes. of the problem real you quick. You do become part of the problem if you're yeah. too agreeable. So it's like yeah. it, it. Like I've seen horrible situations happen against women where one mm-hmm. person is just like, "Oh, sh- she'll be fine. Everything's fine. no, no. Yeah, she's not fine. Nothing's fine, yeah. and you're not yeah. helping. So, <laughs> but you know, so yeah. Either help or get the fuck out. Or of the get way. the fuck out of the way. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And I just, I think it puts a lot of pressure on people who do feel some sort of obligation, like whether it's law enforcement or public servant or somebody who's like a a mandated reporter for whatever. Uh There's a little bit more of that obligation to do something. But I would, I mean, just the average, you know, person maybe doesn't have that same thing. And, And unfortunately, they would rather fucking stream it live to get more likes and to get more people to watch them. Then, I mean, one great, okay, you're recording a crime in progress. Cool. You know, 
what are you going to do with it? Right. You're not get that's more of like that self satisfaction than actually trying to help this person. Right. And you know what I mean? And also hiding behind the phone. Yeah. You're also hiding behind the I mean, the, the days that when we when we grew up, we lived in a time where at one point as a teenager, you knew if you mouthed off or if you started, you, you were going to the playground. Mm-hmm. It was going to happen there because yeah. there, there was more, it's not that you were more aggressive, but you knew that there was no hiding. You couldn't mm-hmm. hide. Mm-hmm. This is why, like, this whole story, to me, this reminds me of with the amount of crime that was happening in New York City, which was mm-hmm. a huge amount. I mean, the 80s mm-hmm. are horrible. Yeah. But also, the powers that be were the mob. Mm-hmm. And when it came to the police, you know, if she was known for coming out of, if she was mm-hmm. gay and she mm-hmm. was frequent she, she, they already knew her and yeah. you know what? It could also somehow be, oh, I wouldn't say a hate crime, but people just didn't. Well, no, I think it would, it would be, I mean, it would definitely would be hate related. Yeah. Hate related. A hate related yeah. crime where they just didn't yeah. put her on the priority list. Yeah. And that could have been her neighbors too. And I don't know necessarily if she was known and maybe like maybe some of the hesitancy for the neighbors to get involved is because yeah. I don't prove of her lifestyle, so I'm right. just not going to help her yeah. with that, which is wrong in itself. And they they were very judgy back then. Yeah, yeah. Very, they were separated. They were just the cultures were very separated, very judging upon upon each other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was. I've, so I it was it's one of the most impactful murders, mm-hmm. pointless murders, pointless. like. Could she have been saved? Yes. Maybe. I think so. At first, if yeah. I think if she got to the door from your little diagram behind you. Yeah. If somebody would have met her at that one. Yep. At the one. They could here. have got her help quicker and she and wouldn't she have been stabbed again and raped. Here. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Once they saw the guy leave and one person mentioned that they saw the guy leave and that she was stumbling, we'll go find her and see if she needs help. Yeah. The threat is gone. Right. Essentially. Right. But he also probably, mostly probably also took advantage of the fact that maybe he was watching and nobody actually, he's like, nobody saw her. Nobody found her. Let me see if I can find her and get the money I meant to get the first time before I got yelled at. I can only imagine what was going through her head on top of being attacked and finally making it to the door just to have your attacker return. That breaks my heart. I mean, and she was stabbed twice and then I don't know how many times she was actually stabbed. I did try to look for the autopsy like report, but I didn't, I didn't see anything. Yeah. I couldn't find anything. So if you guys have it, let us know. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the story of Kitty Genovese and, you know, one of the most remarkable murders for the, what happened after. Yeah. And she probably was just somebody just doing her thing. You know, making her money, trying to save money to open an Italian restaurant and just kind of wanted to live her life. Yeah. She seemed very nice. People liked her. She was, you know, kind of quiet, to stayed to herself, very hardworking. Yeah. She didn't expect all of this probably to ever come out of her, even in life or in death. So, yeah. rest in peace, Kitty. Rest in peace. And we're still trying to keep your memory alive and... You guys, if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yes. Call 911. It's not hard. It's Now it's just a, a push. You can text. A touch. Yeah. A touch on the phone. Yeah. yeah. You can text it. Right. Send my location. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and don't live stream horrible. horrible. Don't live stream situations where there's a victim. Don't do it. Yeah. Just yeah. put your phone down. 
and see if you can help the victim. I'm not saying go into a situation, you know, I notice like on the new, like people are streaming these horrible situations. I'm like, while they're streaming, they could be on the phone with police while they're, they could put the phone down and yeah. may, may in a safe way, help what's going on or stop it. I think from the development, not just of, of like technology, the first, you know, few times that somebody did that, they became so popular mm. with either like tabloids and they were probably getting paid for copies of this because it was getting so much media attention and it was just going right. viral. Yeah. That we now have this sense of it's okay. Yeah. No. And it's not okay. Mm-mm. It's not okay. I don't know. My, my thoughts. Yes. Well, thank you for doing that story. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we need to, when the 60-year marker comes around, we need to kind of, maybe we should re-release this episode. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> oh, rest in peace, Kitty. Yes, Kitty. We'll never forget you. Wow. Okay. I guess, so I guess, I guess you didn't know all that. <laughs> No, I did not. I did. I. I mean, I think we all know the name, yeah, and we all kind of know of her and and some tidbits. Honestly, I thought I initially thought that it was more race, uh, not race. Uh, it was more hate related mm-hmm. because she was gay. Like mm-hmm. I had no idea all that the, those other details came, and I had no idea about the New York Times. Yeah, Rosenthal. I had uh, no idea about that guy either. Yeah. So. Not uh, good. Well, because we don't, we leave you hanging chatters for more information on this case. Please check out After That Crime Chat, only available on Patreon. And don't forget to follow us, Crime Chat with Nat Cat, on all of our socials, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, to see what we got coming up. Natalie, we have two episodes left this season. Yeah! Two! Where you got it? And we're wrapping up season two. And season three. Dun, dun, dun. Season three is on the way. Uh, and you know what? Remember, Crime Chat with Nat and Cat. Or Crime Chat the Clown. We, we named him Clowny. Clowny. We need something more creative. We do. We'll work on it. <laughs> we'll work on it. But um, remember, he is looking out for all the people who are not subscribing. But if you want to become a chatter, please join our Patreon. You'll have access, bonus episodes, behind the scenes, bloopers, free merch. And also, you'll be in any giveaway that we mm-hmm. uh, launch. Mm-hmm. And, and typically, we kind of stand down in October. We do have some things that we're working on that I think we're mm-hmm. going to kind of push out in October and I don't know maybe those will just be for our patrons and our VIP chatters mm-hmm. maybe and maybe clown well whatever his name is gonna be crime clown Cli- crime clown <laughs> will have an episode dedicated to him because there is a famous clown <laughs> well just be sure whatever we got just be yeah. sure to come back check yes. out our next episode <laughs> you just don't come on back alright we'll see you next time on the next crime chat <laughs>